At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Michelle Obama's memoir has just come out in paperback. It's called Becoming, and it sold more than 14 million copies worldwide in hardcover. We spoke with Amy Willens when the book was first published. We'll revisit that conversation. But first... It's been almost exactly a year since the COVID lockdown began, and the vaccines seem to be showing us light at the end of the tunnel. For comment, we turn to Mike Davis, historian and activist, contributing editor at The Nation, where he's been covering the pandemic since the beginning. Of course, he's the author of many books, including The Monster Enters, about viruses and pandemics. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Well, 90 million Americans have gotten at least one shot of a COVID vaccine. We expect half of the total population will be vaccinated by the end of May. Then we could have herd immunity, they tell us, in July. But you open your COVID one-year anniversary piece by saying, beware the light at the end of the COVID tunnel. Please explain. Well, it's simply the fact that when infections, when positive cases aren't controlled, something advocated as policy, of course, by the Trump administration and its embrace of herd immunity, you're constantly increasing the evolutionary space for the emergence of, of new variants. And since December, this has happened very quickly. I mean, here in California, we now have the British variant circulating. But we also have a homegrown California variant that first appeared in July. Both of these are more transmissible, up to 50 times more transmissible than the original Wuhan variant. And new variants are popping up. Brazilian variant, not surprising, given that Brazil is probably the only country that's been worse than the United States because of presidential opposition to public health measures. And 
today, uh, the Oregonian paper of record in Portland. There's a new uh, Oregon variant, which seems to be an independent evolution of the trait that makes the British variant so much more transmissible. So even as the number of vaccinations increases, the virus itself is becoming more and more transmissible through these variants. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's more virulent or pathogenic, but the verdict remains out on that. And there's a very great danger that animal variants, because humans have succeeded in passing it on to all kinds of domestic animals or farm-raised animals, could acquire virulence in those animals and pass back to us. That's already happened with minks, which are a common farm industry in, in Scandinavia. Humans gave it to minks, the minks gave it back to humans. So humans aren't the only actors here. It's almost certain that a fourth wave uh, is developing that will last through the spring, maybe to the beginning of, uh, of summer. And again, not necessarily more, more vir virulent. Vaccinations have shown dramatic ability to reduce the number of extremely serious cases and in, in deaths. But we're still in dangerous territory, which makes it all the more not only reprehensible, but literally criminal that Republican governors and state legislatures, remember the Republicans control 30 state legislatures in the United States, are not only advancing uh, what's estimated to be 250 different bills aimed at voter restriction, but with equal energy and fervor, about the same number of actions to end mass mandates, reopen schools, basically dismantle the public health measures that are more necessary than ever to ensure we reach a place of some, some return to normality by the summer. Let's talk about deaths that have occurred to this point. As of this week, we have more than half a million deaths in the United States. How much of that was avoidable? Well, there are different estimates of this. Probably the most common on in the news is that Lancet, which is one of the three or four most important medical journals in the speaking world, explored this and said, look, if U.S. deaths had been held to the average of the six or seven other large, wealthy industrial countries, 200,000 fewer people would have died. And they directly blamed the Trump administration for this. So 200,000 Americans died unnecessarily because of the policies of Donald Trump who sabotaged and discredited the efforts of public health officials. But you say that is not the full story of Trump's crimes. No, I mean, let me um, just briefly re review the chronology here. Up until the middle of March, the failures in the administration might be attributed simply to incompetence. Above all, the contamination of the CDC's original test kits, which meant for the whole month of February, as infections were beginning their exponential growth, we were in, in the blind. The test kits were contaminated. They could have easily been modified. We could have purchased the German test kits that the World Health Organization used and so on. So this was incompetence. In mid-March, I think it was on the 16th of March, 
the president issued finally was compelled to issue guidelines about closing down uh, large public activities and gatherings and even quarantines. But at the very same time, he had thrown out the entire playbook, which the Obama administration had handed to him in 2000, at the beginning of 2017, on federal responsibility for coordinating and managing the pandemic. He said, it's up to you guys, to, to the states. And the, uh, the governor of Washington said, it was a bit like Pearl Harbor. And your reaction to Pearl Harbor is saying, well, go get them, Connecticut, build your own <laughs> battleship. Uh, this was called federal Darwinism. And it was, of course, disastrous. But then that allowed him to start blaming the governors and the states to whom he devolved responsibility for competing to get supplies and equipment and managing the pandemic to go on the offensive against them as job destroyers, as violators of uh, personal liberty. On the 3rd of April, he said, well, I'm not wearing a mask in public. You don't really need to wear a mask. Some people want to do it. That's fine. Absolutely under undercutting that. In the same month, the Tea Party groups, including Tea Party Patriots, Freedom Works, which it essentially used billionaire money to create from the top down the Tea Party protests in 2009, 2010 against Obama, got together in a big coalition called Save Our Country to mount mass demonstrations against closures and quarantines. And these, of course, led to the appearance of armed groups, militia groups, storming into state capitals against public health uh, measures. And not only against Democratic governors and the main targets, but against Republican governors, even in places like Idaho. But I should emphasize here, this is really important, that we now tend to see all this is, is Trump speaking to his amorphous masses with these militia groups in, in the first row. That's absolutely incorrect. All of this since April, all of the resistance to public health measures, as well as the later attempts to discredit the election, have been operating through the infrastructure, the new far-right infrastructure of the Republican Party all of it with connection and funded by billionaire dynasties like the Mercer family, a private equity billionaires who were his early supporters. But this seems like completely dumb politics. Trump could have been the hero of public health. He launched the vaccine project. He could have campaigned around saving America from disease. So why didn't he do that? Well, Imagine this experiment. It's uh, February of last year, and you lock a group of political scientists in a room, and you just give them the, the bare facts about what's going on, uh, the exponential increase in the disease, the U.S. emerging as the country with the highest mortality rates, Trump administration's abdication of national plan, its opposition to public health measures, Based on that data alone, they probably would have said, this guy's going to be absolutely destroyed in November. He wasn't. And the reason is, there are really two sides to this. 
on the one hand, Trump did everything possible using a kind of uh, political jujitsu to counterpose jobs and the economy to public health. And indeed, that was his concern from the very beginning, that the key to his re-election was the economy and jobs. And his particular fetishes, Wall Street, stock market prices. On the other hand, the Democrats did an absolutely abysmal job of arguing that to restore jobs and restore the economy, a national pandemic plan was the key. In other words, to make jobs and public health inseparable. Instead, they let it divided. And before the election in October, there seemed to be a strong recovery on the way. It proved to be a total illusion. In December, the numbers all went south again. So I've argued in in various things I've written about the uh, last year's election, Trump was, I, I believe, able to win 15 or 20 million votes based on the fact that people confronted with this awful choice between income and the health of their families saw him as being the guarantee, guarantee of jobs, voted for him because of the economy. I want to go back to the possibility of herd immunity and the argument that we may get there a lot sooner than it seems because of the untested people who got the disease, didn't die, and uh, recovered. Either they had very mild symptoms uh, or maybe they were asymptomatic, never tested, never diagnosed, and now they have antibodies. And there are tens of millions of these people who who got the virus survived and were never tested, they're trying to estimate how many of the uncounted infections there are that conferred immunity because of antibodies. They say might be three in eight or something like that. In L.A. County, where we think a lot of people got the disease and were never diagnosed, that would be something like four million people. That's more than the 2.5 million who have been vaccinated in L.A. County. So if you add together the people who probably have immunity from antibodies from having gotten the disease with those who are vaccinated, uh, we're now at about 50% of the total American population and we'll reach herd immunity in the next uh, couple of months, 70% in July. Of course, that depends on these estimates of how many people have the antibodies, and it also depends on how much protection you get from having had the disease given the new variants. You know something about this. What do you think? Well, if you monitor the the medical literature on this, one of the first things you're struck by is the fact that we're still in a testing fiasco. The United States has done the worst possible job, not only in testing, but in communicating test results from, for instance, county health agencies to states and the the federal government. So trying to derive reliable statistics or conclusions from testing data is extraordinarily difficult, in fact, maybe impossible. Secondly, the United States, unlike other countries, not only rich countries, but poor countries like Vietnam, has done an extraordinarily uncoordinated, poor job of testing sequencing the variants. In other words, when you have a blood test, 
what should follow is sequencing the variants. This is going to be done very rapidly and, and, and cheaply. So we're still in the dark about the variants that are circulating in, you know, in the population. Also, many people have experienced, you get a test to tell you what, whether you have the coronavirus now. Uh, a much smaller number of people have actually been tested for antibodies to find out if they had the coronavirus before. So all this, you know, clouds drawing those kind of conclusions, maybe or maybe not, plus the fact, and I don't want to exaggerate this, but there is evidence that people who got weak cases or were asymptomatic cases in other countries were then reinfected by the South African variant and possibly by, by others. And there's simply not enough research to draw a conclusion about this. All this points, of course, in one direction, which is the, the urgency and importance of maintaining masks and social distancing and so on. We know about some of the variants. We know the UK variant has now spread to more than 80 countries and has been doubling, they say, every 10 days in the United States and is expected to soon become the dominant variant here. You mentioned the Brazilian variant. Seems like the Pfizer vaccine is effective against the Brazilian variant. That is good news. But you and I first talked about this a year ago on this program, and you laid out the the mutability of this virus and pointed out there will be thousands of variants of the COVID-19 virus. Most of them won't make humans sick, but a lot of them will. And it's a challenge to virus scientists to, as you say, sequence these new variants. And then they're pretty confident that they'll be able to, to come up with the famous booster shots, which will then have to be manufactured and distributed by the hundreds of millions, and that will take months or more. The idea of thousands of variants is, is, a, is a scary one. Well, I mean, it's the same problem that we've traditionally faced with influenza, or that matter, any RNA-based uh, virus, viruses whose genomes are not DNA, but RNA, and they mutate so frequently that is to say that they are so inaccurate in making copies of themselves that they're always producing mutations, the vast majority of which don't confer an evolutionary advantage to a virus. Variations which, in fact, may make them less transmissible or, or virulent. But all this is happening so fast that ultimately what you have to think about is and, and the variations that are particularly concentrated in, in the spike proteins of these RNA viruses that allow themselves to attach to cells and then open the cells up for invasion. And with influenza vaccines, which we have to make anew every year, we're addressing variable parts of those spike proteins. But if you could develop vaccines that incapacitate those spike proteins by focusing on the more stable, invariable parts of them, then you could have something like a universal vaccine. And there's tremendous scientific evidence that with influenza, that this should be, uh, you know, should be possible. One of the weirdest things about our whole experience in the last 14 months or so is the way people are constantly talking about uh, one of Trump administration's claims is 
Well, this is hardly worse than the flu. You know, it kills 20, 40,000 people a year. The fact that we accept that 40,000 people a year should die unnecessarily from influenza should be something that shocks us. Rather, it's become something like homelessness. It's just naturalized in the background. We accept it as inevitable, and it's not inevitable at all. So hopefully there's will remain the, the incentive and the investment not only to continue to produce vaccines tailored to specific variants of SARS-CoV-2, but the possibility of universal vaccines. And there really doesn't seem to be any scientific reason that that's not possible because basically influenza and coronavirus, while they're tremendously adaptable, they're nothing like, for instance, HIV and its constant ability to outwit antibodies. But the question is, if we achieve herd immunity, if coronavirus becomes something manageable like the flu, what will be the incentive to continue research toward more universal vaccines? We now have platforms for the uh, delivery of antibodies that are simply amazing. And there's a bunch of them. I mean, there's uh, two major kinds already used in, in, in vaccines. I haven't seen any indication of Democrats in Congress really pushing a full-scale plan for increased surveillance of emergent viruses through development of universal vaccines and, and so on. Hopefully that will happen, but that isn't visible right now. A universal vaccine should be possible. Mike Davis, you can read his piece, COVID at Year One and Counting, the American Book of the Dead, at thenation.com. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, John. Michelle Obama's memoir has just come out in paperback. It's called Becoming, and it sold more than 14 million copies worldwide in hardcover. It was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, NPR, People Magazine, and lots of other places. Michelle Obama also won a Grammy for Best Spoken Word Album of the Year. We spoke with Amy Willens about the book when it was first published. Amy, of course, is a writer and journalist who's written extensively about Haiti, the Middle East, California, and the Trump family, which she covers for this podcast. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and the former Jerusalem bureau chief of The New Yorker magazine. She wrote the award-winning book on Haiti, Farewell, Fred Voodoo, and she's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. She also teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. We talked about Michelle Obama's book in November 2018. Well, we're interested in what the book has to say about politics because hers were a bit mysterious, maybe more complicated than she let on. She was part of two presidential campaigns, a decade at the top of American politics. And of course, the Republicans went after her, starting in 2008 with all the fury and all the lies they could launch. She reminds us about that at the very beginning of her book. Yeah, she, she says she wants to take apart the three words, angry black woman, which is the worst thing that she is for those people. Um, and she believes that it's her blackness and her femininity that were the real targets of the people who were detracting from her stature when she was campaigning with her husband. 
Also, while Barack Obama, as she often says, was kind of a unicorn and a hybrid and a very different kind of person with Kenyan ancestry and and just a, a a very strange being, she herself was an American born black American. And that's why she feels a lot of the hatred came down on her. We look to Michelle's book to learn what she has to say about her real politics. In her story about growing up, it's important to her, as you've said, that she's from Chicago's South Side, a legendary black neighborhood in America, maybe second only to Harlem. And in high school, she was best friends with Jesse Jackson's daughter around their house a lot as Jesse was preparing to run for president. What does Michelle have to say about being in the center of black militant politics in America in the, in the 80s? She wasn't that into it. She says it was kind of fun and interesting, and there were sometimes famous people there, and it largely stood in the way of her and her friend Santita Jackson getting to where they wanted to go because they were relying on the grown-ups, and the grown-ups would like have to stop off at a meeting and then have to stop off at some you know place where they picked up food for some rally, and then they wouldn't get to the shoe store in time to catch the sale. She actually says, I liked seeing what they were doing, but, quote, I needed rather desperately to get to the water tower place before the K-Swiss sneaker sale ended. So, I mean, she's portraying herself as a teenage all-American girl, and she wants her readers to empathize with that and to relate to it. She's very concerned with making herself what my students all call relatable rather than high-class first lady with intellectual interests. Or, or someone, even as a teenager, engaged with the political project of black America. And yet she knew very well that her family had decided to stay on the South Side when many people moved out, not just white people, but middle-class black people. She wanted to remain there. Her family wanted to remain there. Her father was a Democratic precinct captain, and he was very involved in Democratic politics. She has to have known more than just when the K-Swiss sneaker sale was on. And of course, she went to Princeton because her older brother, Craig Robinson, was already there as a basketball star. She was at Princeton from 81 to 85. She says she had never lived in a white world before. At Princeton, she says she lived mostly in a black student world, hanging around at the Third World Center. The interesting thing to me is that the chapter on Princeton, she says nothing about ideas, courses, books, arguments, even though she minored in African-American studies. I know. It's a really strange thing. She has to have been thinking and growing politically while she was there. Also, the experience of being the only black kid in a classroom or seeing yourself as one of a very tiny minority in such a white bastion as Princeton after having lived on the south side of Chicago has to have been completely disorienting. She talks about it to a degree, and she talks about meeting her roommates and having a white roommate who didn't want to live with her anymore, and she talks about being around her older brother and at the Third World Center. Yes, that's what it was called then. But she doesn't mention, you know, reading Franz Fanon or Marx or any or Malcolm X or, uh, you know, any of the grand figures from African-American writing. 
in contrast, Obama's book about when he went to Occidental College is all about how opened his eyes to be in black studies and to read Franz Fanon, Malcolm X, and W.E.B. Du Bois. This was a transformative experience as he tells his story. Of course, he was a kid from Hawaii who wasn't really African-American at all, as you have said. But still, you wonder if there wasn't more to her intellectual life at Princeton, or, or maybe there wasn't. She met Barack in 1989. Barack had been a community organizer on the South Side for three years before he decided to go to law school and then came back. I mean, she barely mentions the fact that her uh, husband had been a community organizer for three years in her neighborhood. No, she doesn't seem interested in it at all. She doesn't seem to have really talked to him very much about it, although there are, there's a paragraph here or there about you know, being at a bar and having him talk about community organizing. But it doesn't seem to be the top of her list about things she treasures in him. Probably her most famous statement in the 2008 campaign when, after Obama won the nomination, she said, for the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country. We kind of know, or we think we know what she meant, that black man could run for president, huge thing in American history. It was a classic political gaffe when somebody says something true that you're not supposed to say. And after that, we think she was required to keep pretty quiet about what she really thought, but it got her in a lot of trouble. And in the book, she takes this up and says she was just misunderstood. Yes, she says she was misunderstood. She was very proud of her family for having gotten through this election. The country was so nice to them. It was so heartening to be a black person and receive this kind of understanding when for so long one had feared that one might not. All of these things. But never really addressing why that kind of a statement would be so incendiary to so many. But what interested me, too, is that afterwards, she kind of went to Barack and said, I'm so sorry, I never realized that would be taken in that way. I speak too freely. What should we do? And then, like 20 minutes later, she had a team. <laughs> and she had a personal aide. She had a scheduler. She had a media consultant. She had an airplane. And she had hair and makeup on the plane. <laughs> so that's what fixed Michelle Obama and stopped her, really, from speaking in that way. And uh, what she said, her media consultant told her, was to remember the things I most enjoyed talking about. And what did that turn out to be? Well, that turned out to be my love for my husband and my kids, my connection to working mothers, and my proud Chicago roots. I guess the Chicago's a little, a little incendiary. <laughs> Only a little. No, but what's interesting about that is what she was told by her media consultant was essentially assume the role of the first lady already. Before your first lady, act like a first lady. Concern yourself with women's problems, women's things, and your husband and your children, and stop talking about, you know, politics. And in fact, there's very little about the other parts of the campaigns, the people they're running against, how they get votes, how they don't get votes. She talks about this great post, uh, first time I've been proud of my country. Uh, after that, her first appearance on The View, where she sat around with the usual suspects. And she says, quote, talking about attacks against me, yes, but also laughing about the girls and the fist bumps and the nuisance of pantyhose. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just, it hurts me to, to read that. 
And then she says, and people started buying the black and white dress that I was wearing on the show. I was having an impact. In the 2016 campaign, she was back on the road campaigning now for Hillary and against Trump. You know, I think a lot of us think her greatest moment came in the speech she gave right after Trump's Access Hollywood pussy grabbing tape. Let's listen to a little bit of it. This is not something that we can ignore. It's not something we can just sweep under the rug as just another disturbing footnote in a sad election season. Because this was not just a lewd conversation. This wasn't just locker room banter. This was a powerful individual speaking freely and openly about sexually predatory behavior and actually bragging about kissing and groping women, using language so obscene that many of us were worried about our children hearing it when we turn on the TV. And to make matters worse, <laughs> it now seems very clear that this isn't an isolated incident. It's one of countless examples of how he has treated women his whole life. And I have to tell you that I listen to all of this and I feel it so personally. The shameful comments about our bodies, the disrespect of our ambitions and intellect, the belief that you can do anything you want to a woman, it is cruel, it's, it's frightening. And the truth is, it hurts, it, it, it hurts. It's a great speech, it's a political speech. Uh, she has the tremor in the voice, the tremor in the voice is not fake. And uh, and she has two girls. And, you know, I was making fun just now about her saying the things I really care about are only my girls and my husband and my pantyhose. But she cares about how her girls grow up in America. And this was horrifying to her. And to see a candidate like that running, I don't want to get a tremor in my voice, <laughs> but against a woman of really a reasonable stature, political stature, and able to talk like that. And indeed, Michelle was right. It was swept under the rug, essentially. It may come back to haunt him, but... The New York Times the next day, commenting on that speech, called her, quote, the most outspoken first lady in modern history, close quote. What does she say about this in the book? She describes this very momentous thing in one paragraph, as if she's, uh, as if she's not so proud of it. And she should be really proud of it. Not only was it a great speech, and no doubt partly at least written by her, but perfectly delivered. And finally comes the bad ending of the whole story. Obama is replaced in the White House by Donald Trump. They did everything they could on the campaign trail to prevent that, and they failed. We wonder, why does she think about this? Why does she think Trump got elected? Why did Hillary lose? Was there anything Obama could have done as president to have made the Democrats stronger in 2016? How does she explain Trump's victory in the book? She says, I'm not a political person, and so I'm not going to attempt an analysis. And that is just a giant cop-out on so many levels, really. First of all, she's a political person. Second of all, She's done an analysis of it. Why isn't she offering that analysis? That's a really important analysis for the American people to hear. But she and the editors of her book have decided not to permit that to be put into print. And at the end, she sums up Barack's accomplishments as president and her own as first lady. Well, there's the vegetable garden. 
and it's bigger than it ever was, and she's put some new trees in it. There's the um, new set of dishware, the Obama presidential dishware that she oversaw. There's the um, campaign for kids healthy eating, crucially important, especially in the black community because of so much eating out at fast food restaurants. And the, the concomitant Let's Move, which is the dancing exercise program that she propagated. And what else? That's pretty much it. Programs in the Third World for Girls Education. So this is not a political book. It's not a book about what she learned about politics or how she learned to do politics or how the Obamas changed politics in America. What kind of book is it? So what I think is that it it has a carefully crafted uh, demographic target, and that target is women. I think it's women voters, and that she doesn't want to bore us with policy, but they're a political family from Chicago. Those people talk politics like it's Rice Krispies. And all of that is really missing from this book. You know, I wonder, is it possible that Michelle Obama actually is not a political person, that the thing she cares most about is childhood obesity and healthy eating. We would like her to be more political, more of a left-wing Democrat, and maybe she isn't. Whatever politics there are, she is not at a point right now where she wants to discuss that. But I also think that those issues that you talk about, uh, childhood obesity and the let's move uh, idea, are political issues, and that she thinks of them that way. It's not like decorating the White House. Well, we're talking here as if now that it's over, she should tell us the real story of what she really thinks, but maybe it's not over. Well, this was my thought in reading it, that it is such a carefully scrubbed and attended to book. She's left so much politics out. Who does that, really? Who leaves politics out of what they say? Politicians. <laughs> and then, so I thought, she's running for office, and she's kind of clearing the, the stage. She's getting rid of all the garbage from her past and not um, certainly not bringing any new stuff in. And at the end, she says, I am never running for office, never, never, never. But do I believe that? Not from reading this book. And she's doing a book tour in 15,000-seat arenas. And what else is the purpose of this book? Is it to tell Michelle Obama's story? It's to tell the story of becoming Michelle Obama and onward. And onward. Amy Willens wrote about Michelle Obama for the Washington Post. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, John. Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming, is out now in paperback with a new introduction It's also out in an edition adapted for young readers. One more thing. If you want to stay on the cutting edge of the cultural conversation, you need to subscribe to the nation's newest newsletter, Books and the Arts. With this newsletter, you'll receive a curated selection of the nation's latest cultural criticism, along with a short essay exclusively for nation newsletter subscribers, written by the books and the arts editors themselves. Don't worry, we won't clog your inbox. The world of books, art, music, and film will be delivered to your inbox every two weeks. It's something worth looking forward to. Subscribe to our new thought-provoking and agenda-setting newsletter at thenation.com slash book newsletter. 
That's thenation.com slash book newsletter, all one word. Subscribe today. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.